Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. He is a thorn in the flesh and a threat to dictators and autocrats worldwide. For democracy fighters from Tehran to Minsk to Istanbul, he is the guru of peaceful resistance. My guest today is the Serbian political activist Srđa Popović. Srđa is one of the founders of the student movement Otpor and one of the leading figures of the revolution that toppled the Milosevic regime of Yugoslavia in October 2000. International media calls Srđa the secret architect of global revolution. He is co-founder of the Belgrade think tank Canvas, Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. And to this date, he has trained pro-democracy activists in over 50 countries of the world. And he also lectures on the topic of nonviolent struggle and building movements at universities such as Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and Columbia. Apart from being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012, Srđa was listed as one of the top 100 global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine. And in 2014, he was named one of the young global leaders by the World Economic Forum in Davos. Ariana Summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. fantastic to have you on the Superhumanized podcast today. Ariane, pleasure to be with you on Superhumanized podcast and good day to all of your listeners. Thank you so much. You have decades of experience with helping protesters around the world learn effective and also often humorous nonviolent tactics. According to you, cake is one of the most effective weapons in peaceful resistance. Please explain. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, uh, people take uh, protests uh, very often too seriously. And that's probably because what we see on the TV is when it gets angry. So you see the bunch of angry people yelling and throwing and burning stuff. Actually, most of successful nonviolence protests are related to creativity and the way to make them funky and the way to make them cool because funky and cool attracts people. And more the movements can attract the people, the more effective they become. So within the outpour and within work with all of these groups through Canvas, we figure out that we really want to focus on creativity and wit of nonviolent tactics, which we very often call laughtivism. Yes. So what is the laughtivism is combination of laughter and activism coming from a non-English speaker like myself. So it's a coin that doesn't exist. We try to establish it. And it takes a look into how humor really works. So first of all, we need to figure out that the humor works in our own life. And if you take a look at how it works in movement and how it works in life, it's really, really very similar. 
So first thing that humor does, humor breaks fear and apathy. And mm -hmm. fear and apathy are most common obstacles to change and most common reason in status quo. In a dictatorship, you have people who are afraid to act because they will get in trouble. In a democracy, you have people who are too busy buying in Walmarts <laughs> to engage in a, in a, in a nonviolent struggle because the target has a new sale. So what happens with humor is the humor effectively breaks fear and apathy in both. So take a look at your, your normal life. You are preparing to go to the dentist if you are the person who is afraid of dentist or to the major surgery. And here comes the doctor say, oh, you see this little shiny metal object. We're going to put it inside your mouth and this is what we're going to do with that. And you're like, <gasps> immediately you get afraid. You don't want to know anything about the process. Uh, then a good friend of yours comes in and say, Ariane, it's not a big deal and cracks a joke. And when you start laughing, immediately this fear disappears. Yes. So. This happens in your life. It happened to me many times. It probably happened to many of your listeners. Humor breaks fear. Similarly, nonviolent struggle, if you're looking at a very fatherish figure of, you know, Vladimir Putin, and then immediately there is a group of people staging the protest with toys, because this is what really happened in Russia in 2012. The people were banned from protesting, but they come out and they organize a little legal protest. They build a legal city, they bring the, whatever, kinder toys. And then the police was forced to ban this protest because the people had so much fun watching it on YouTube that they tend to start thinking that they should replicate it. So humor works breaking fear in your life, humor works breaking fear in the, in the, in the fight for democracy. Another very powerful engine of status quo is apathy. Very often, uh, change doesn't happen because people don't care, people have their own lives, politics is for somebody else, and you know explanations of that kind. Well, let's go to the apathetic situation in your own life. What's the most boring party you've been in your lifetime? So here is the bunch of people not even enjoying their drinks, figuring out what the heck in the world they came over here. Immediately, a prankster comes in and starts teasing everybody. And what seemed to be the very boring party turns into the very insightful and cool social event that you don't want to leave. So very similarly, when you use pranks in nonviolent struggle, if you bake a birthday cake for a president and then, you know, put on it the, the things that he or she done in the past, and then, you know, he gets angry about it and the media talk about it, you look cool. And the people love being around persons who are cool. Yes. Take a look at your phone book. Who is the most uh, attractive person for you to be around? The most clever one, the most educated one, the one with biggest money, the one with biggest file on IMDb? No, the one who can always make you laugh. The prankster. And this is exactly something that is such a core philosophy of your view on protests. It's laced with humor, it's laced with rock and roll, and you just, and it's helped mobilize movements worldwide. And you just published your latest book, Pranksters versus Autocrats. And in it, you explain the concept of so-called dilemma actions, a structured and a strategic approach to fighting back against authoritarianism and for defending democracy. So explain to us the concept of dilemma actions. Uh, once again, back to tactics. Uh, because people are seeing too much protests and rallies, it's normally the first thing they pull out when they're angry or dissatisfied with something. Very similarly, like having a toolbox with only hammer in it, and then every mm. problem looks like the nail. 
the thing is, there is like more than 220 different registered tactics of nonviolent struggle, ranging from things you know, like rallies and marches, all the way to the weird things like protest disrobing and things of that kind. And you know that because you participated in kind of a protest disrobing campaign. Yes, PETA activist here. Yeah. So yes, <laughs> you know, so, the, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the thing is like, there are many of these tactics and what you do when you pick your tactic, first you want to want to look whom you want to impact. Mm. So sometimes you want to disrupt your opponent. Okay, block, occupy, stop traffic, do things of that kind, overwhelm with calls. And then sometimes you want to pay attention to something. Sometimes you just want the people from the middle to join. So before getting engaged in a tactic, you want to take this strategic insight. And very important part of this strategic insight is that this is chess and you have two players. So it's not only what you play, but also what your opponent will play. So when you are structuring a dilemma action, which is the subject of the book, and me and a marvelous person that you should interview for this podcast, Sophia McLennan, who's one of the, to. yeah, she's one of the largest American experts in, in, in satire and how satire actually cures your brain. So I teamed up with somebody who knows psychology and satires and watch a lot of late night shows. And we were figuring out why this dilemma action works. So first of all, the idea is you're not only doing a thing, you're doing a thing so your opponent will do the thing. So you're putting your opponent between the rock and a hard place. So the first well-known registered case of dilemma action is an Indian struggle for democracy. Mm. Had this marvelous guy called Gandhi, had this big goal to get rid of the, well, at that point, the largest world colonial superpower, UK. And he had a lot of support, but he was facing a very, very powerful machine. So his idea was to pick an issue that everybody cares for, which was salt, among other things, the colonial Britain was taxing salt in India. So it was weird. You're living in a country with 5,000 miles of sea coast. Anybody can produce salt because what you need for salt is sea and sun. And India has plenty of both, but you can't. You need to buy it from Brits and thus effectively fund the oppression over your own people. So his idea is this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stage a big march I'm going to go to the coast. I'm going to be first Indian to defy this ban. I'm going to make the first handful of salt. And then what the Brits will do? So the choice was, if they arrest Gandhi for doing this, they will release him after two weeks because, you know, the, the penalty for this is is few hundred pounds or you spend a few weeks in jail. And then if they don't stop him, everybody will start making salt and a very important income source for Brits will disappear. Win-win situation. Win-win. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for Brits, it was a lose-lose. So they were loving this guy, starting with 20 followers. And that crowd grew because he was marching through towns and getting more supports. And then at one point, you have 15,000 Indians making salt. So this is basically the essence of a dilemma action where you put the adversary, in that case, an autocratic regime, into a place where they can only lose no matter what they do. Do I understand that correctly? Absolutely. And there are many cases, there are many cases of structuring this dilemma action. And there are some great cases from American civil rights movement. For example, you know, when people, people say uh, Montgomery bus boycott, but they never ask themselves, why Montgomery? Why not LA? And why buses? Why not, you know, public, uh, whatever, metro system? The thing is, you put your strength against your opponent's weakness. So Montgomery was a 
very important city because you know this this was where the oppression over the the afro-americans was strongest and also they couldn't gather and they couldn't go and they could go in front of the city hall but nobody will care because elected representatives were elected by the white majority that was supporting segregation so they could do the tactic but with no visible effect instead of that they figured out that they are those who have power and their power was in numbers the white people were rich enough to have cars. The black people were using public transportation. So what they did instead of impacting electing officials, which didn't work, they impacted the transportation business. So they say, if we don't ride, you lose money. So what you can do is either change the seats so everybody rides equally, or you stay with empty segregated buses and lose money. Yep. So it's loose for you, or it is a lose for you. Hit In both cases, you win. Yep. And, you know, it ended up, you know, and it spread it to malls and the food courts and malls. Once again, they find something ridiculous. Majority of Afro-American buyers in certain malls in Southern American states couldn't eat in the food courts because food courts were for white people. So they say, okay, you want us money, our money. You want us to shop in your malls. You don't let us sit in your McDonald's or whatever was on table at the time. This is what we are going to do. They were occupying the food courts. So 50 Afro-American students would peacefully sit in where they are banned to sit in. They would peacefully wait for the police to get arrested. The moment that car leaves with 50 people in it, the new 50 people sit in. Hmm. So if you are a mall owner, what will you do? A, you're losing shoppers. B, your food court is in complete mess. C, you're losing money in a, in a food court. D, you have a trunks of the policemen running around through your facility. Of course, what they did was go, 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 go back crying to their politicians and say, we need to desegregate this. Mm-hmm. We're losing money. This is going to kill us. Yep. So you're so, looking at a very well-structured dilemma action from American history. It yeah, is so, win. Yep. And dilemma action seems like a really excellent tool. And a lot of activists choose out of principle to follow the teachings of who you mentioned, Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King. Others, however, assume that violence is the only way to overthrow a violent regime. Why is nonviolence the better political strategy for resistance groups? First of all, it has to do with the background phenomenon of successful struggle. And if you read Saul Alinsky, that's another book that I would strongly recommend, Rules for Radicals, you figure out that anger is, in fact, very powerful mobilizer. Uh, seeing uh, uh, George Floyd executed on camera uh, causes rage and it's a normal human emotion and and it comes from you, you want to do something about this you become agitated you 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 look at what is happening you, you look if there is a protest you look what you can do but if you are driven by anger only and not anger hope to hope anger is a very destructive force per se and you know when you're personally angry you tell to your friends or to your partners think that you would regret and you know Yes, anger is a powerful mobilizer, but anger without hope and without strategic approach can easily turn into something that backfires. Now, this phenomenon of violence, the main argument of the people who are advocating violence is that because you're doing violence, they will take you more serious. So, you know, we peacefully protest, but nothing happens. And then, bam, we burn the Wendy's restaurant somewhere. And this is where all the media come in. Well, first of all, you need to look at what really works in nonviolent struggle. 
and you want to dissect social change, and every single social scientist will tell you it's all about the numbers. You need to reach the certain amount of the people supporting certain things in order to shift institution to follow you. So the game of numbers works like this. We stage the peaceful demonstration. We bring drums in. We bring clowns in. We bring uh, beautiful girls in, 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 in their, in their uh, fight peta, uh, I would rather be naked thing. You <laughs> bring the good spirit of what we call protestable in, and immediately I see it, and I take my four-year-old and my six-year-old, and we all go to protest. So you effectively increase number. Not only it's me, I'm trusting your cause, but it's also my family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this type of event will attract the normal people. It will attract their kids. It will attract the elders. It will attract, attract disabled. It will attract everybody. So now there's a clash with the police. There's a little tear gas. There's a little tension. Uh-oh, I'm not bringing my kids to this. Right. So I would be a fan of tear gas. I, I love the smell of tear gas. I mean, demonstration <laughs> where tear gas is used. It's a has kind of, you know, here's this aphrodisiac thing with us. Nostalgic with for us. you, right? Nostalgia, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smells like youth. And, uh, and, uh, but, but the thing is like, this is you, you can only count this type of people. And then the next level is you use violence and somebody's using live rounds against you. Right. Now you can get, get killed. Yes, now, this of is course. Serious. Of course. When you look at the level of participation in nonviolent struggle, it's always connected with something we call the risk bar. Yes. So if you want to increase the participation, you lower the risk bar. Makes absolute makes, sense. But yeah, makes, what, makes entry for everybody uh, the way that you can do something meaningful, but still you can get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So taking a look at the figures and the science, there's this great study which started with a... Uh, 323 cases, and now it's more than 600 cases run by, by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan. They actually scientifically prove that if you have a demand and you have a campaign and your campaign is violent, you have about 23% of chances of reaching this demand. So one out of four. If you have a demand and you have a campaign and you maintain nonviolent discipline, your chances grow up to 56%. So if you talk to the people why not using violence, aside of the fact that it's just, you know, ethically better to use nonviolence, you can sell to the people by throwing a stone, you effectively cut the chances for your demand to be met by half. I mean, you can still do it, but yeah. this is what it gets. But these are the numbers. These are the results. This you're is what get. the science says, yes. Yeah, amazing. And, and so the one thing is the outset of a movement, of a protest, um, and what the people decide. So let's say the people decide who participate in movement, okay, this is going to be nonviolent resistance. And we look at the United States, uh, we've seen an unprecedented wave of protests recently. So the one thing is the choice I make as an activist, but how do you keep a movement peaceful and uh, prevent from being infiltrated or hijacked from the outside because oftentimes there's third-party agitators who want to incite violence and want to make your peaceful protest look like it's not. Uh, first of all, uh, the nonviolent discipline is a skill. So this is like driving car. And there are many elements of driving car. There is a steering wheel. There, if you live in Europe, there is a manual shift gear. If you live in US, you are not trouble with that. You have some other stuff to do. And there are tires and you need to park it and things of that kind. So people learn how to drive cars. Most people do. 
So people can learn how to maintain nonviolent discipline. And the same way that people learn how to drive cars in a slippery road or, or in a snowy road, people can learn how to maintain nonviolent discipline, even if your opponent uses infiltrators. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it's understanding that this is a skill. This is not a moral choice. It's a great if there is a moral choice. This is not a religious choice. It's great if you have religion behind it. But this is a skill. First element of this skill, you teach it, you preach it. So the first element is telling everybody in the movement, this is how we are going to do it. It's because it's higher moral ground. It's because it's more effective. It's because it's pink and I love pink. Whatever is your teaching, you go through this teaching and you make sure that every single person that joins your organization knows that this is what you do and obeys or kind of follows this code of conduct. Of course, there'll be drunk people. There'll be crazy people. I'll explain this later. Step number two, selection of tactics. Certain tactics are more likely to produce conflict than the others. You block the road, somebody needs to drive the kid to school, good chances for conflict. Mm -hmm. You march 10,000 people in front of the city hall in LA, you try to get in, good chances for conflict. You sit down, you block the major intersection, people can't go, good chances for conflict. You go to your opponent's political rally, your supporters meet his or her supporters, good chances for conflict. So. These are high-risk tactics. Most of these tactics are also tactics of concentration. Low-risk tactics are like, okay, I disagree with this politics, I'll wear a badge. I'll wear a T-shirt. I disagree with McDonald's politics uh, on workers of color. I will boycott McDonald's. And I will persuade other people to boycott McDonald's too. So you look at the tactics which are less likely to produce violence because A, there is no contact between us and them, whatever that means. B, it's dispersed. So it's happening on many places. So there is no concentration and capability of this adrenaline and you know, excitement to, to burn out. Even if you want to stage a march and you know you will face the police and you know there will be people in your ranks that were sent by your opponent that will start inciting things, you can do a lot of things. First, in Serbia, we were doing a lot of training before we go there. So you make sure that there is a banner. Nobody walks in front of the banner. So the person controls the march who has a megaphone, when, when he or she says, stop, everybody stops. So there is an empty space between your forces and the building you want to protect. There is an empty space between your forces and the police forces or your opponent forces, whatever. You control the crowd. Then what we were doing was we were training people when they see the police, they sit down. So what happens is that if everybody sits down, only crazy people or agitators or your opponent supporters will be left standing. Uh, so you can brilliant. identify who these people are. Yep. And also when you sit down, you appear to look less threatening to your opponent. And also when you sit down and your opponent uses violence, it looks very bad on the camera. So all of these things are there. And then last thing, you want to create a tampon zone between you and your opponent. Very often, this thing, we, we did this head banner, which was saying resistance to the victory in Serbia, or it can say Black Lives Matter in US. We take a photograph from these protests. You will see young women, elderly people, and disabled people in the front ranks. Why so? Because they are least likely to attack the police. Also, if there is somebody in your ranks who wants to attack the police, they need to attack the women and disabled and priests first. That's not very likely to happen. If this happened, you know who this person is. 
last but not of least importance, police is more reluctant to be the nonviolent protesters if they're coming from these categories. So you intentionally structure your march. Yes, you decided you want to march. You know that there is a high risk but you do whatever you can do to, from preventing this violence to occur. Also, one other thing is violent groups. So there may be the groups that comply with your goals, which is fur is that, but they prefer throwing the red color over Madonna. You experience that in your activist life. So yes. what happens is that like when you take a look, you, you type in G20 protests. So you have this anti-globalist protest every time you have a G20 meeting or G10 meeting anywhere in Europe. And what normally happens is that you have tens of thousands of people coming from environmental movements, labor unions, LGBT rights, equality movements, super nonviolent. And then you have groups like anarchists and black bloc and this and that who see the possibility for spotlight. So they come there and incite violence because they know they will get a cover pages of the newspapers. So one of the ways to deal with this is, first of all, you disfranchise these groups from you in the organizational stage. You say, you know, we are not affiliated with you guys because we don't want to see us, be seen as you guys. But more important, one very good lesson was Rome 2011. The large lefty demonstrations were organized in support to Occupy. It sounds funny. There was a time in this world where people were demonstrating in support of the United States, happens sometimes. Well, you know, you need to be proud of it and take a look at this. But what happened was that there were 100,000 people and they knew that there will be, there will be a huge outcome. And they knew that the block, block, Black Bloc, which is a very well-known, small but very radical anarchistic group will appear and start burning things. This is their idea of fun. So what happened was that they, put a $50 website and they say, okay, you get, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever, Twinkie and, uh, and uh, ice cream as the award if you make the best photo or video of these idiots who are going to incite violence. <laughs> so they effectively turned 100,000 people into the citizen journalists taping meticulously 50 people who are inciting violence. So first Excellent. of all, yes. For the police, it was really clear who is doing what. So there was no stampede, there was no chaos, there was no conflict. B, they helped police identify the perpetrators. So not only they proved their cause, not only that they were not labeled as perpetrators, they were also labeled as the good guys who wants to do things legally. And yes, in Italy, you have the right to march and protest legally if you are nonviolent. Mm -hmm. So the thing is here is like with a simple trick, like you know, organizing a tampon zone between you and your opponent forces, or organizing, taping the people who incite the violence, you keep everybody busy and you prevent this kind of craziness yes. from spreading, but you also, you also send a very clear message to the spectators that, yes, we are against this thing, but we are committed to nonviolence, and yes, there is a five crazy guys who will burn the cars and let's go arrest them. Outstanding technique, and I know that on the website of the uh, of Canvas Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, which you are one of the leaders of, people can find a whole suit of videos and tactics because one thing is very important, you know, to make your voice heard and speak truth to power, it seems is more important than ever today. However, you want to combine that with a nonviolent resistance. You don't want to fuel the fire. 
superhumanize. You know, something that we've seen time and again, often movements start, revolutions start, and then they fizzle out into nothing. For example, let's look back um, at the Egyptian revolution in 2011. The task for activists often is not only how to start a revolution, but also how to ensure that the revolution doesn't get misused by other forces. So how can they do that? And why do so many movements fail? What do they Uh, fail to take care of? First of all, in Canvas and in academia, it's very important to take a look as a failure as the opportunities to learn something. Mm. So failure is a defeat only if you don't learn anything from it. And uh, failed movements are actually the very, very futile field of research. And basically what we figured out is that the movements failed in three different stages. Obviously, sometimes they fail to catch fire and to catch numbers, but that can be overcome by using the successful techniques of recruitment and communication. Then in the engagement phase, which is the phase where movement have between 200 and several thousand members, so it can perform tactics, they fail because of lack of strategy, they fail because they lose nonviolent discipline, they fail because they use dividing tactics. But what is really interesting, that majority of the movements fail when they're on the peak of their power. So turning large numbers and large mobilization into standing victory, this is 60% of the failure. So theoretically, if you look at the same signs I'm quoting, uh, you have larger chances to build from 10 people to half million people than to make this half million people make lasting change. That sounds crazy, huh? But this is exactly what it happens with this movement. So first of all, you need a long-term vision of tomorrow. You need to look at the day after. Successful movements are not looking into this ballot measure to go or this dictator to step down or this thing to happen or that thing to happen. They look at how to maintain it happen. So Egyptians, for example, were very powerful in mobilizing, very good in building unity. You had the urban youth and then the more religious Muslim brotherhood types with beards and then even the Coptic Christians. So the unity was there, but the plan was to remove Mubarak. The moment the Mubarak was not there, they spread into parts, they didn't participate in the process, and they left the transition just lying on the street. And what happens is when power is on the street, the most organized group steps in. It's up in the for grabs. case, yep. it's military, Muslim Brotherhood, and they keep wrestling around this power, and now military has the upper hand. But the people who really shook the tree, they went off the tree when the fruit was start falling mm-hmm. from the tree without collecting this fruit. Second is this bear in front of the cave phenomenon. So uh, somehow it was easier to mobilize people, even in the face of oppression, against the bad guy called Milosevic in Serbia, than keeping them focused on the transition. Revolutions are sexy. Transitions are dull. (laughs) So when I call you and say, so there is this awful guy we need to protest against, yes, it can be tricky. We should be running from a tear gas. You know, there will be some rush and you will think twice, say, okay, I want to do this because your adrenaline tells you that your activist adrenaline tells you that you want to do it and say, okay, let's go to the meeting, to the city hall to discuss how we are going to, uh, to set the transparency process through building the institution of ombudsman. And you're like, okay, I need to go shopping. You know, it's like I have other things to do in my life. I need to walk my dog. So the thing is like, because you have the enemy, that somehow unites you. 
And that comes from our cave selves. So it's like it's older than the politics. It's older than protesting. It's coming from, from us living in caves and being very hairy uh, several, uh, several thousands years ago. And probably there were clashes between the people within the tribe where we are going to hunt tomorrow, who is going to marry the hairy beauty of a tribe, whatever. But when the bear is in front of the cave, this argument stops till we get rid of the bear and then we continue. So the thing is like uh, having the, 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 the bad thing in front of you where this is a systemic racism which sparks a lot of, 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 of protests now in US, where this is a bad guy who you know, runs Philippines right now, where this is Bolsonaro in Brazil who says you know, the coronavirus is nothing and you know, well, people are dying out of it. So wherever you look, if you have the visible enemy, once you're on the verge of getting rid of the visible enemy, this is where the trouble starts. So you need to keep your eyes on the ball and instead of person, you need to take a look at the change. So it's not about Ariane or Sergio or Bolsonaro or this or that. This is about Bolsonaro don't giving damn about the Amazon forests. This is why we need to stop building mines and building roads and giving this, this land for the people to grow crops because what they use is fire. And when they use fire, then zillion of acres of this forest burns. And I'm now actually explaining the actual situation. So what happens is that if you are an activist protecting the Amazon forest, you maybe piss on the President Bolsonaro, but just making President Bolsonaro stepping down doesn't solve the problem. Correct. Because the new guy may come and understand that giving land to the people that will be cleaned by fire will give him a lot of vote. So what is going to happen is that you need to change the system. You need to educate the people on the ground. You need to make illegal to do this kind of stuff. And then you don't care whether the Bolsonaro or somebody else is in the power. So you're looking at the problem and you're looking at the systemic solution of the problem and you're looking at the long-term vision. And this is the only way to prevent you failing at the peak of your mm -hmm. way. Because then the guy steps down, the problem is still there and your numbers are like deflating. Meaning if you want to be a successful revolutionary, make sure you did your homework and don't just run on adrenaline. Also, um, also if you want to be a successful revolutionary, time after time, this church has said this, like, uh, however the strategy may look beautiful, you may want occasionally to look at the results. Mm. So, yes, <laughs> quoting, quoting clever people, uh, I, would, I would quote uh, once again, the President Kennedy said amazing thing. He says, of course, if you don't believe this conspiracy theory, it's all done in Hollywood. Uh, he says, we need to bring a man on the moon, but we also need to bring him back. Ah, so it's, it's, yes. you need to finish things. You know, it's like, it's just, yes. not just making this guy stepping down, but we need to change the system. So it's not just bringing people on the moon. They also need to bring, be brought safely back. Absolutely. This is the end of yeah. the mission. Can we can parachute somebody to moon, but what then? Yes, Kennedy was brilliant in um, as much that he was able to put very lofty ideals into simple words that would reach people, not just their brains and their hearts. And I'm talking about lofty ideals. Often people think that it's lofty ideals that will actually topple regimes. Sometimes the reasons are much, much simpler though. In your experience, and you have worked with many, many activists uh, all over the world, and you've been a revolutionary at some point yourself. In your experience, what are the number one real reasons that bring regimes to fall? 
the number one real reasons that bring regimes to fall, and there is a huge study by Carnegie Endowment a few years ago on the number of protests in the world, is what we call the bread and butter issues. And uh, I would formulate it this way. Uh, yes, Ariane, uh, uh, people like us find each other very amused and, and, and energized by talking about the lofty ideals. But uh, unfortunately for us and fortunately for society, we represent only the small portion of the society. Majority of the people will join movements only if there is something there for them. Now, people are selfish. Majority of people are selfish. This is not a judgment. This is a state of facts. So how to listen to the people and figure out what will move them is yet another way of thinking. Okay, I've spent uh, most of my life in Belgrade, which is the dog's poop capital of the world. <laughs> this is serious. Now I'm serious. Now I'm okay. serious. It used to be Paris, but now we overtook the place number one. So you're looking at your neighborhood and because I have two small kids and kids tend to pick things from ground mm. and put it in their mouth, Ooh. you're kind of quite concerned about this phenomenon. People don't clean behind their dogs. Mm. So normally what your human nature will do is going to take a look at who has a dog and then start yelling at that person. So immediately you find an enemy. Or, or you will stage a protest in front of the city hall and saying, oh, this ridiculous mayor can get us rid of this dog's poop, he or she must step down. Instead of that, clever movements are looking and building what we call the spectrum of allies. I'm explaining your question, why would people mm -hmm. join? Okay, mm -hmm. so now I'm running through the street. My obvious natural allies are people with kids. So I started by my own kind of supporters because of course I assume that they have the similar problem with me. So now my numbers grow, it's not only me, it's like five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 families I'm growing my numbers. Maybe these people know some people that they will call so we can go build from their personal contacts. Then take a look at the balconies. You can distinguish the age and the background of a person living in the apartment in my city if you look at the balcony. If it looks uh, idle, people are in and out and use this as a dormitory. If it's beautiful with a lot of flowers, you'll expect a nice granny living there, taking care of her flowers in a very polluted urban environment. Now, these grannies who care about their balconies, they also care about the streets. So my second level of, 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 of uh, looking into why people will join the movement, now it's not only me and it's not only my kids and it's not only neighbors with kids, nor the people who widely care for this. And then I'm looking at the disabled people because disabled people moving in the wheelchairs have a big difficulty when they need to remove this thing from, this substance from their wheelchairs. And then I'm looking further. And then I'm looking to the local representative, the city hall, because I want to make city hall my ally in this process. And then immediately I have one of these, these, uh, these uh, young persons who are the social media geeks and has like uh, 700,000 followers on a TikTok or whatever. And she's living next door and then I want to speak with her as well. So this is where I look for my allies. But for each one of them, I need to figure out why would they support my crusade against the dog? Superhumanize. So when we were doing the research for Blueprint for Revolution, and also one of the things your, your listeners should watch is a Sean Penn's Milk movie. If you watch this movie, you will figure out that without focusing on dog's poop, 
we may well not ever have LGBT rights in the United States. So how do dogs poop relate to the LGBT rights? This, this, this sounds ridiculous. I'll explain this to you. Harvey Milk moved from extreme, he was a soap box preacher type of activist, into mainstream. He wanted to get elected for the city hall. But because he was running on a platform which was very important and very dear to his heart and very dear to my heart, which is the, the sexual rights of the people, he could mobilize only that amount of support that he can never get elected. So he always ended up being ninth or being fourth or being whatsoever until he figured out that, you know, the polls show him that, he spoke with his neighbors, and he figured out that the biggest problem of the San Francisco at the time was not the gay rights, but the dog's poop. There was a moment in time when, when, when San Francisco was playing in the World's League with dog's poop, people were not clean with a dog. So he walks in and it's actually very well staged in the movie. And he's going to announce that he's the run for the third or fourth time for the city councilor. And in front of the camera, he steps into the dog's poop. He, he was good in staging this type of event. And he shows his smelly shoes and he says, you know, you know me, I'm running on LGBT rights for years and years now, but I want to, to tell you something completely difficult, different. Uh, whether gay or straight, I'm the person who is going to curtail you from the dog swoop. So this is where you're looking at the problem that really matters to the people. This is where you're looking at the person who understands this. And of course, Harry Milk was one of us. He was learning on his own mistakes. And this is the revelation moment when, no, the rest is history. He gets elected. He becomes the first LGBT mm -hmm. person to get mm -hmm. elected. And now we are in a place where, where, where we are uh, with his rights and we should advance them. But, but this is a very different world than the 80s when it was considered to be the mental disease. So when you are taking a look at this, you figure out exactly what you need to find. If you want to mobilize the people, we don't care only for what ideas. You need to find the smallest common denominator. And sometimes it's very, very banal, like the dog's poop, like the education for kids, like the clean street, like the pothole. So you need to figure out what will bring these people to you because yes. they love you. And they're very thrilled with you being on eternal crusade for animal rights or veganism, but they'll never join you. Mm -hmm. The trick is how they join you is the trick. And so like I'm, I'm in Colorado now, and it's a very, very interesting state. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, very progressive in some things and very conservative in some other things. And I had an amazing experience speaking with a guy a few years ago who lives in a very small place called Lake George. It's 3,000 people live there. He never left that place. He tried living in a 10,000 city. He said, this place is too big for me. Me and he, we are riding. He's giving this, you know, he rents horses. So we went on a ride. And I had this dialogue with somebody who spent his life in a, in a 3,000 place. And my dialogue is about something I care very much. And a lot of the people living in small places in America are considering to be the Chinese hoax. And that's a climate change. Right. So how do you structure a dialogue with this kind of person? You start with polar bears. God damn, he was never in a zoo. So uh -huh. you don't start by, uh -huh. by, by this kind of, of thing. And you walk slowly with him. And at one point, you see the, the, the dead tree, the dry tree. It's very often here in Colorado, we had fires. And there were, there were days where you could, couldn't see the mountains, which is really weird in Colorado. Normally, you can see the mountains because of the smoke. And what happens, you speak to this person and you say, what is this? 
and he says the pines go dry because there is no rain. Mm. And I say, how this impacts your, your, your town? And he says, we had seven farms, now four of them closed, and they were sold to the big companies because individual owners who have only 30, 50 of cattle couldn't support it. So it went all to the big companies, the people lose land, the people lose jobs, yeah, yeah, yeah. the city is changing. So it's a real yeah. pain point for the community. Draft. So you, instead of polar bears and these big stuff, and we're all going to drown because the sea level is going to start, and we need less than 350 cc per cubic centimeter of something, which is very often the scientific language the climate change activists taught, you need to figure out that you can go to the place that you consider to be the the birdbed of your opponents, like, you know, the people who don't believe in this stuff. And you can start by looking at how the climate change impacts them, impacts their environment, impacts yes. their life. You need to make it kids. personal. You have you to, make to make it personal. personal. And for yep. this guy, it is this dry pine that leads him to the dialogue of the draft that enables me to get into the, to wedge this point and say, yes, but have you, have you also noticed less snow? Right, exactly. And what you're talking about is so crucial in order to start for things to change. It's uniting people. And um, if we look at, you just recently moved to the United States with your family, you're in Colorado. And if I'm sure you've observed this too. I've lived through it. I've lived for many, many years in the US. I partially grew up here. The social and political climate in the United States is extremely divided right now and you know neighbors parents sisters and brothers talk to each other anymore even Um, and one of the biggest things we face as a nation in the united states is how to heal the nation so how do you unite people from different sides of a spectrum behind one cause how can each one of us as individuals within a society be part of the process of healing and coming together to, again. What can each one of us do? Well, first of all, first of all, I will speak about this on a on a on a theoretical slash uh, political level. I spent years in the politics. I know tribalism, and I know divisions. And I grew up in a twenty million country, which went through the six civil wars. So now we have six countries because we what, what, the things that divided were more important than us than the things that united. And what I can tell you, don't go that way. It's not really making making everybody happy. And uh, the thing there is like, first of all, you need to understand that you, you, you just formulated nicely, Ariane, and I know you understand it, not only because of your intellect and passion for news, but because you feel it as a human being. The way to doom is when you wedge the lines and say us and them. Mm. In America... It's even mainstreamized into, into something that is called political identity or identity issues. Now, how the thing which is political somehow becomes your identity, how this defines you as a human? I had a marvelous uh, conversation with a, well, I teach class at NYU and very often we bring people from movements that, that serve as a case study and had an amazing opportunity to sit in the class and learn from young women that were involved in a probably largest single political protest in U.S. history, 
which was the day of your president's uh, inauguration a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And all of this, you know, Women's March kind of stuff. And uh, what they were telling me was, was an eye-opener for me. And said, I said, how many groups? You know, so I was interested in the anatomy of this protest. And I was especially interested in how such a large mobilization never turned into the permanent organization. So I was looking at how come you missed the opportunity of having millions of people without turning them into something steady that can advocate for your issues. And, and then one of them, Delaney, was the name, amazing, like brilliant young woman, probably 150 IQ, far more, more smarter than I am. And, and I was saying, okay, so we had all of this LGBT groups and, you know, civil rights groups and blah, 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 blah. And I, I said, okay, but what about the others? What about the conservative groups? So, mm-hmm. so I was interesting is, yes, you can mobilize your numbers, but can you go, you know, to appeal to the others? And she, she admits, because she was brilliant, she says we had this large series of conversation and there was a large number of the groups uh, uh, coming from a conservative side of the spectrum that will stand against indecent behavior of them president, that will stand against, uh, you know, unequal salary for women compared to men. But, uh, you know, they were pro-life. Right. And we didn't want to sit with them because they were against abortion. So understanding that you have a bigger fish to fry, agreeing on what you can agree, and then disagreeing, agreeing on what you disagree. So yes, we want all women in America to be equally paid, and we will talk abortion later. So this is where we are with this, like putting your order of battle in order to unite more people towards this. And on a micro level, this is macro level, on the micro level, it's, it's really interesting. It's like this afternoon, I'm going to take my kids to, a, to, a, to meet an amazing guy. Steve is his name. He does something very unusual. He builds a communal park here in Colorado Springs. So what the guy did, he found a place which is next to the railroad. It's a dump. Basically looked like a dump. I've seen photos. And then for 10 years, he persuaded community that community need a park. So you have this community where people already invested 10,000 working hours. And it looks marvelous. So now you have artists making sculptures there. Now you have, a, you know, the, 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 the people who build this experimental playground for kids, which looks very different than the plastic ones that you can find in a, in a normal approved park. Uh, he built premises on the spot. So he give the people free premises so they live and take care of the park. It's a really, really interesting community idea. I've never seen anything like that. And now uh, he's in dilemma what to do with it because city may want to take it. And it's a public land. So now, because, you know, it looks like crap five years ago, but after 10,000 working hours, it looks great now. No, they and want it. Say, oh, of course we want You know, every mayor in the world wants to cut this ribbon. And, you know, April, it's an it's election year. So, so, so for the local election. So this wonderful dialogue with him. And then, and then we're going to see the building there. And, and I'm going to take kids. And what is really interesting is that this is how you build across the lines. So if you are a neighbor who helped build a park with your own hands and with your own time or with your own money or with your own chair, whatever you donated to this park, 
how will you, would you really mind whether the mayor coming to take it is a Democrat or a Republican? You or you will be defending the park. You defend the park. Don't you, will, you will probably be even angrier <laughs> if this person comes from your party choice. Absolutely. It will yeah. even make you angrier. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at how small things, community things can unite people. And then you go back to the real deep problem, like, you know, so if this problem with that Black Lives Matter outlines very well, and this is the problem of the American inner cities, it's a politically correct way to call ghettos. I'm a Serb, so I'm not very politically correct. But it's like when you look at the ghetto, where this is a, this is a Latin ghetto in LA, where this is a Afro-American ghetto somewhere else, it's not just the race. It's the lack of opportunity. It's a social distance. It is the lack of possibility to get jobs. It's a lack of role models because your son wants to become a gang member. Mm. So you're looking at what lacks and then you look at how to bridge this gap. And I had this marvelous conversation with a former policeman in Baltimore right after the violence in Baltimore. And he told me that there are some things there called community youth centers. So 20 years ago, people from, from Afro-American community could set kids uh, to get a meal and play basketball and have uh, people in the uniform, basically police officers, firemen, firewomen, and this kind of people uh, commute with kids and help them with the homework. And of course, kids would be their ass in the basketball because they were more talented. But the kids would be happy with shiny cars. And it was like the kids and, uh, and the fire cars and things of that kind. And they will spend time together and they will learn about each other and they will become buddies. And then these kids would be the first one to report about the dealers in their neighborhoods to the police people who were there. So you need to build a common space. And one of the links you want to put in, in under this, this podcast is an organization called Camerados. It's a How great do you spell them? Camerados, C-A-M-E-R-O-D-O-S. So Camerados is run by a crazy guy called Muff Potts. He left a good corporate job to run a community organization. They big pu- build public spaces. They started in the UK. Uh, I met him when he was inspired by my book and had only one of them in Bristol. And now there is uh, two dozens of them in the UK and they have it in hospitals and here and there. And this is the place when you and me would go and cook for somebody who's homeless. Wonderful. And this is where the people with needs will come to meet people with privileges. But unlike giving them help, you ask them to help. So this is making them purposeful. So they have the principles and it now has a lot of neighborhoods are doing this. And this is how you prevent this us and them. Because if you meet with other human beings, if you share with other human beings, you would be very, very reluctant to label them as the other. Yes, and this is is something that I've just observed in the last years. This rhetoric of us versus them has just gotten to such a point where it is so highly toxic. We are brainwashed, whether it's in so-called news, whether it's in pop culture. We are brainwashed into when we meet another human being to first be aware of the difference the differences that we may have versus what unites us. And I think that's where each and every one of us is called, you know, as an individual person, as a parent, as a teacher, to just keep that in the back of our minds and correct it when we can. 
because this is not something that naturally grows you know, we are a uh, human beings alike to cooperate. This is something that I really feel has been imposed on us in the cultural climate that we've been living in in the last years. Superhumanize. Something else that <laughs> I would just like to hear your opinion on. There's been a lot of talk lately in all across the different media in the United States that the U.S. is on the brink of a revolution. If you compare what you're seeing here to what you witnessed as a young man in Yugoslavia and what you've seen in the last decades around the globe. Do you think there's any merit to that talk or is it just hyped up clickbait in the media? Well, I don't know if it's a clickbait in the media or it's uh, the way the, the Americans respond to unusual things because they're they are used for things to work and then when Hurricane Katrina hits in and there are no services for days, you guys just freak out. Well, not you guys, you're German, I'm a Serbian, but yeah. basically the, the Americans stand uh, uh, to freak out with this. I, I, I don't think it's a revolutionary situation. I think it's highly politically divided. I think it's uh, very sad that people don't talk to each other. Uh, I see symptoms where the politics, as you do, uh, impacts families. And, you know, I've seen this lovely guide uh, done by, by, by a friend of mine, a journalist, and, you know, how to survive... Thanksgiving without talking of politics. Yeah. This is this is you know when you get to this stage, then this is this is this is a this is a very serious situation. But political divisions doesn't necessarily mean revolutionary situation. I think America has still uh, functioning uh, democratic institutions. The thing with democratic institutions is that the democratic institutions are only as strong as the people support it. One hundred percent. So and who are active in it. Vote. There's this, there's this beautiful dialogue. And, and once again, to refer, I, I know you love Lord of the Rings. You know I love Lord of the Rings. This I know a, you do. You have an uh, altar for Lord of the Rings at home, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I left it home. I brought Bilbo Buggins with me in the pocket. Mm -hmm. So the, the, there is this marvelous dialogue when, when the city of Minas Tirith shall be sieged. And they're looking at the defenses. And there's this big wall, but there is a gate in the, in the wall. And then, then they say, we need to defend the gate because it's a wicked point in the wall. And then the wizard Gandalf says, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good gate, but no gate will stand if people abandon it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So if you take a look at any given democratic, take a look at the elections, the less people participate in the elections, the more likely is that you have the bad guy who mobilizes his supporters and gets right. in power. Yeah. So if you take a look at any given democratic institution, take a look at the town halls, the less politicians will care for what people think if they don't turn out to the town halls. So take a look at any single democratic institution and you'll figure out that, uh, well, I was not a big fan of Reagan the way I was fan of, of President Kennedy, but uh, Ronald Reagan said the big truth that in any society in the world, democracy is only one generation far from extinction. Mm -hmm. So don't get it forgiven. You need don't to take live it democracy. for granted. Don't take it for Not granted. granted. Live it. Do the unsexy quote thing. Go out there and vote. Go reach out to your representatives. Make your voices heard. And this comes from somebody who, uh, such as you, whose life it has been to affect change, to fight for democracy. 
An interesting fact about you is that you are a study biologist. So your scope of looking at humanity and what's happening is, is informed from a lot of different places. In your mind, what is the biggest issue you see humanity facing in the near future? What are the next big fights that we are going to be facing? Well, I, I, this, is a, this is a great question, and I'm in no means uh, in the position to give the answer. I think uh, uh, as a father, I see, I see two major issues. One is, of course, climate change and the environment and the way the world is changing uh, while we were taking a look at something else. And uh, part of this is also the pandemic. We are living it, and if you compare the amount of money that countries were spread, spending on, on arming compared to the amount of money that countries were spending in improving their health system, then you are not amazed that we are with coronavirus where we are. And uh, when you take a look at, the, at the, any given part of nature, you can say that nature is kind of, of trying to get rid of us. Mm. And it tried to do in the 14th century, and that phenomenon was known as a, as a great plague. So it happens time after time that we get warned that we need to do something about our environment. The question is whether we listen or not. We definitely listened in 14th century, we start, stopped spilling feckles on the street because yes. that decreased the number of rats and that decreased the quantity of plaque. And I mean, it's like when you take a look at, you know, sometimes you need to learn how to take care about yourself. You look at the 14th century, we were warned that, you know, too many people in too small environment polluting too much is going to kill us literally kill us. And, you know, I think this is what, what nature tells us with our globalized world, with our crazy traveling, with our, with our exchanges and not caring for, for how we behave. And, and uh, the second one on which I'm getting growingly concerned is our dependence and addiction to technology. I think mm. uh, 21st century, the gurus that will take your kid off the screen would be the best paid job in the universe. Ha, huh, that is really interesting. So especially um, uh, from looking at the background, for example, also for organized protests where technology and social media has been such a vital instrument for a lot of movements. But I'm, I'm, I'm with you right there. I think we really have to watch where technology will take us and uh, whether we own and use it uh, wisely as a tool or whether we are owned by it. Or we end up in a black mirror from Netflix. Oh, one of my favorite series. <laughs> you, you have um, lived a very, very full life and experienced so many things. There is a question I ask each of the guests I have the privilege of having on the podcast. What are the practices that most profoundly, whether physically, mentally, or spiritually, changed your life for the better, Sircha? Uh, well, uh, one of the uh, one of the thing is is referring to to one of the early books, like Lord of the Rings was one of them, and then uh, when I was young, Carlos Castaneda was very popular, yes. and it's a uh, it's a very interesting anthropologist uh, wrote very interesting books about the. Uh, supposed life and religion of Yaqui Indians in, in central parts of Mexico. And uh, he, like this teaching, which is kind of a very, very spiritual, spiritual but not religious kind of stuff, 
it was closest that I get to this kind of, of experience. And, and uh, like the idea is that you can live like a normal person, you can live like a warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ordinary people take everything either as a blessing or a curse. Warrior gets everything as a challenge. Mm-hmm. So this is the, how you see things. And then uh, normal people do things as they must or as they wish or as they will or as they can. Uh, the warriors live by the credo to give your best whatever you do. And I think this sentence probably shaped my life on a, on a very practical level. I got it as the inspiration on a very spiritual level, but basically when you take a look and you're trying to be the, if you drive, drive the car, the drive the kid to school, try to be the funniest person to drive the kid to school. If you try to, to, to wash the dishes, try to wash them really good. If you, it's like, don't get rid of this focus in doing the things because it keeps you, keeps you whole and keeps you focused and keeps you concentrated. And then another practice, which is, which is very important for me, uh, being, a, being a city rat myself and growing up in a, in a large city, uh, go to nature, fish, be near to the war, speak to nature, ground yourself, ground yourself. We spend too much, uh, too, too huge portion of my li- our life, we spend running, 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 running. We need to be grounded a little bit. The only way to ground is to get away from the city. And one of the things that, that I'm noticing now, now for a month in Colorado Springs in the mountains is actually however exhausting the transition may be with two kids and you know finding a job for my wife and doing my job from home and, and, and eight hours distance back there in Belgrade over the Zoom, I... I go to sleep a little bit rested. You know why? Because the city is not around me. Mm. Because we take hikes three times a week. Because you have wonderful parks and you see the presence of the nature. It's with you. So you're not looking into the skyscrapers and the concrete. And I actually understood that I, I used to run away for weekends. I used to run away for fishing for years back there in my life. But these were quick fixes. This is like taking a tranquilizer if you are too upset and then you get your weekend. <laughs> and then you deflate. The moment you deflate, you come back. So the more calm moments in day you can have, the more calm moments in weeks you can have, uh, the more, I mean, you, you, you meditate if you know how. I don't know how. I would love to, but I don't know how. But try to ground yourself. So the first thing, do your best, whatever you do. And the second thing, try to ground yourself. Mm, that is sage, sage advice, Sarja. I know, so we just spoke about your book about pranksters versus autocrats. And um, I very, very much love the book you published before also, Blueprint for Revolution, How to Use Rice Pudding, Lego Man, and Other Nonviolent Techniques to Galvanize Communities, Overthrow Dictators, or Simply Change the World. So not only if you are somebody who wants to be politically active, but also if you want to be a great leader and community organizer, or even if it's within your business, you want to bring people together. I have learned so many valuable lessons from your books. What is next for you now? And where can people find you? How can they connect to you? Well, first of all, uh, uh, I, I don't really know what's next. Uh, I'm trying to figure out... Uh, how to bring this bigger research about the role of humor and this kind of stuff. 
I'm also trying to bring more activists to academia and more academia to activists because I think, mm. uh, you know, like in climate change, seeing things is one, but having the solid scientific background, having it as a science, it's like one thing to say, don't do violence. And right. it's completely other thing to say, we have, we have analyzed 500 cases and violence just doesn't work. So it's like when you take a look at how to bring more of this happy marriage of academia and activism into social change, uh, this is the particularly what, what I would be uh, passionately working on in, in next time. Uh, I'm, I'm In the book, I left my email. Uh, people can read the book and mail me. A lot of people do that. This is how I met something, some of the very, very interesting people, including yourself. And uh, also, uh, what is really, I mean, I do have Twitter, which is Sergio Popovich. I do have Facebook page. Canvas has a very interesting website, www.canvasopedia.org. There are many free resources on how to build movements, including the short videos. All of them are free of charge, some of them in very different languages than English or Spanish or, or Serbian. So, I mean, it's like one, 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 the call to action is, I mean, yes, you can follow me, but try to follow yourself. Try to figure out that uh, even the smallest creature can change the destiny of the world. And there is no such thing as insignificant social change. If it's small, attack it, change it, and you just feel different. It's a life-changing experience. Sergio, I'll make sure to put all of that information in the show notes. As always, it's been really great connecting with you and talking ideas and uh, hearing your great insights on, you know, some of the biggest issues we face as humanity. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for inviting me, Ariane. Always a pleasure, thrill and honor exchanging words, thoughts and energy with such a lovely person as you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 